0: Well, Lord willing, brothers and sisters, by the end of today, we will have wrapped up the first major section of the book of Leviticus. We're actually kind of flying through it. The first section deals largely with sacrifices. And if you remember, and I put this in our order of service today just as a reminder, the book of Leviticus largely consists of four major sections. You see there, chapters 1 through 7, all the way through the end of 7, Largely deal with sacrifices. There's some other things in there, but largely with sacrifices. Chapters 8 through 10 deal with the institution of the Levitical priesthood, 11 through 16 with uncleanness and its treatment, and then finally, chapters 17 through 27, the longest section, deals very broadly with other practical considerations of holiness. Today, Lord willing, we'll wrap up the first section. Now, as far as what we're actually going to be covering today, if you remember, I said at the outset of this first major section that it itself is largely composed of two sections. With chapter 1 through chapter 6, verse 7, it deals with the sacrifices on the one hand, largely from a theological perspective. It's getting at the meaning behind them, um, what kind of sins, necessitated them, all really getting at the the theological meaning behind them. On the other hand, it's also largely from a layman's perspective. Now, there are things that concern the priests there, just as there are things which concern the layman in the second section, but for the most part, it deals with the layman. In fact, um, you hear the refrain in that section, tell the sons of Israel, or something like that, whereas in our second section, it's, command Aaron and his sons. The second part then, which begins in chapter 6, verse 8, goes all the way to the end of chapter 7, deals not so much with the theological significance of the sacrifices, though there is some of that, but perhaps more with some of the practical matters that concern the actual ritual uh, ritual itself and largely from the perspective of the priest. Things that would concern them questions they would have that the layman would probably really not have. Now, if there is one unifying theme that we see in all of this uh, second section of the first large section, the section we're going to look at today, I would say, as my sermon title suggests, it's particularly instructions for the eating of sacrifices. If you remember, the priest's received, those who served in the temple, they ate of the sacrifices. And so it should not surprise us that in the section that is largely from their perspective, there's a lot of questions about the eating of sacrifices, but also just questions about eating in general. Gordon Wenham says, the principal theme of these chapters is the eating of sacrificial meat. Who may eat what and where? In most cases, only priests could eat the sacrifices, but laymen could share in the peace offerings, and this is the cue for introducing more general rules about eating and about the portions of the peace offering reserved for the priests. Now, we have a large chunk of Scripture before us today, and it is full of details. I kind of thought about passing over this section, but there are a lot of little things we want to answer that would not really be treating Scripture um, as we truly ought, um, there are some interesting things to consider. That being said, though, it's a large chunk of Scripture, it's very detailed, and it's not exactly clear what to take away from this whole passage uh, in general. Uh, I almost thought about having, like, seven points of application at first. Um, We're not going to do that, (laughs) Much of the chapter deals with things we've already considered in many other kinds of application before, matters of clean and unclean, the distinction between holiness and common. Furthermore, we've actually looked at some of these sections already, particularly as they relate to the peace offerings and the guilt offerings. We kind of looked ahead. So perhaps the question from this whole section as we go through it is, what is the application for all of this? there is some very encouraging, rich gospel application, particularly as it will relate to who can eat from the altar. The author of Hebrews, as we'll see, has some very cool things to say and to take away from all that. I think we will be very encouraging, and yet I preface all this to say, I do want us to press through the details first. So it will kind of seem like drinking water from a fire hose, but I promise there, there is gospel richness at the end of this, and there are a lot of interesting things to consider in the Word as we go along, okay? Well, that being said, let's go ahead and dive into our passage. I want to walk through this section. Um, I will probably be commenting fairly briefly, um, and then we will get to the end of it in the book of Hebrews, beginning in chapter 8 of verse 6, or verse 8 of chapter 6. "'The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "'Command Aaron and his sons, saying, "'This is the law of the burnt offering. "'The burnt offering shall be on the hearth on the altar "'all night until the morning, "'and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. "'And the priest shall put on his linen garment "'and put his linen undergarment on his body, "'and he shall take up the ashes "'to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar "'and put them beside the altar.' Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. In these first instructions, there's really two things to note. First, even to go and get the ashes and to remove them, the priests had to put on their priestly garments. They could not think to themselves, well, you know, I'm not really helping with any of the sacrifices. I'm just kind of of cleaning things up. After a while, the ashes would accumulate. I'm, I'm just cleaning things up. This is not, I'm throwing out the trash in a very crass sense, we could say. I'm not doing anything spiritual. Even then, they had to wear their garments because they are entering into the holy court of the tabernacle. Furthermore, when they leave, they can't take the holy garments with them. They have to put on common clothing. Why? Well, it's kind of the same principle, but just in reverse. You wouldn't wear common clothing, if you were a priest, in the holy place, and you would not wear holy garments in a common place. This is really getting at the need uh, To distinguish between holy and common. The second thing, um, which it's it's a bit interesting, uh, there's a lot of interesting, I I guess, legend among the Jews about this, is the the matter that the fire on the altar had to be constantly burning. It could not go out. It says it twice. With burnt offerings, that's very much a practical matter. Um, I've never seen the body of a cow burned entirely by fire, but I'm sure it takes a long time for that to actually happen, and so you would not let the fire go out, or else the whole thing would not uh, be consumed. However, it seems that there's probably a little bit more of a spiritual significance to this as well. God seems to be very clear, it shall never go out. It could be the case, as I've said before, that this is a sign that Israel was always to be worshiping God. They were never to let the fire burnt out, right? It could also point to the constant need for atonement in the Old Covenant, while well, God is dwelling among a sinful people. And honestly, those two things, can they, they fit quite well together. It could be both. And an interesting note, as we'll see in chapter 9, the fire of the altar, when it starts for the first time, that was actually kindled by fire falling from heaven. By maintaining the fire, it was seen kind of as a maintaining of the fire from heaven. And in fact, this is where there's all these legends among the Jews that even when they went into exile, some of the priests you know, took a torch of the fire and they kept it burning all the way in Babylon, and then they brought it back so that that fire has never stopped, right? I don't think there's any truth to that. There probably is also, though, here... A picture of the Holy Spirit descending on the day of Pentecost. When he descends, how does he descend? As tongues that are aflame, fire from heaven. And interestingly, it happens as God is indwelling his church. We've kind of looked at that before. So there's probably some significance there, okay? Moving on, verses 14 through 23. And this is the law of the grain offering. Sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take it from a handful of fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leavened. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings, it is a thing most holy. Like the sin offering and the guilt offering, every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is the, teaching, or this is the offering that Aaron and his sons shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. Here, just note that with the grain offering, as we've kind of seen this before, it could be eaten by the priest if it were given by someone else. If it's from the priest themselves, they had to burn it all. Again, the principle behind this is because when an average worshiper gave it, they never got anything back. Um, As far as they're concerned, it all went to God. When the priest himself is functioning as the worshiper, it's the same principle. They give it all to God. They don't give any of it back. Um, I I kind of said as like a weird analogy, that would be like if I just tithe to myself, okay? I'm tithing to the Lord. I'm a minister, right? I'm a priest in the house of God, and I just tithe to myself. But I did give it to God. You're like, well, not entirely, right? So they are to give it to the Lord. Verse 24, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, uh, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten, in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. Here we see several things. First, as with many of the other offerings, the priests can eat of the sin offerings. The only exception to this are given in verse 30. It says, no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. If you remember, when we looked at the sin offering, there were two scenarios. Um, which necessitated that the blood of the sin offering went all the way in to the tent of meeting and it was sprinkled before the veil. It was if a priest had sinned and brought guilt upon the people or if the whole congregation themselves had sinned. In those two circumstances, no one could eat of the sin offering unlike the other in which the priest could eat of it. The reason for this is probably twofold. First of all, the worshiper who gave of a sin offering never ate of it, okay? You never ate of it in general. It was not really seen as a celebratory thing. It was probably more of a focus on the solemn punishment um, necessary to forgive sins. You see this uh, in, in an interesting way that when the sin offering for the, the poorest person is uh, just a grain offering... No incense and no oil is added to it. None of kind of the pleasing, good-smelling stuff. It's more sober. It's more simple. And so they wouldn't eat of it in that sense. The worshiper never ate of their own sin offering. With the two scenarios that are mentioned, however, either the sin of the priest or of the whole congregation, they are both really corporate in nature. Obviously, when the whole congregation sins... It is corporate. So the sin offering is for the whole congregation, even for the priests themselves, and so they wouldn't eat of it because the worshiper themselves, whoever the sin offering is for, you never ate of it. If it's the sin of the priest, that sin is said, again, to bring guilt upon all the people, the whole congregation, even the other priests. And so still, it's being offered on their behalf, so you never eat if the blood goes into the sanctuary. Okay? The second thing to note here is the instructions about blood getting on holy garments. On the one hand, this is a very practical consideration, especially as it relates to the sin offering. With the sin offering, a lot of things happened with the blood. The blood went places. You had to do things like carrying it into the sanctuary. You could spill a little bit. You had to do things. If you just got water and tried to do this, you might get blood on your on your. Or I'm sorry, water on your clothes in some way. So it's a very practical consideration. The reasoning, however, is not purely practical, but theological. The blood was to be off, to be washed off because the blood was special. It purified the altar. If it got on the garment, that was not part of the cleansing ritual that God intended so it was to be clean. This is probably also the reason behind the mention of what to do with pots in which the meat of the sin offering had been boiled. If it was made of clay, it was just to be broken. If it was made of bronze, it was to be scoured and washed. Really, the reason for this is so that none of the residue of the blood of the sacrifice would be left on it. It's special, okay? That only goes on certain things as part of the cleansing ritual, okay? Okay? Moving on now to verse 1 of chapter 7. Take a drink of water. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering. And its blood shall be thrown against the side of the altar, and all its fat shall be offered, the fat tail the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, that he shall remove from the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in the holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it, the priest who offers any burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan, or uh, all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle, shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among the sons of Aaron. Now we looked at this uh, passage last week. I don't want to belabor too much about this since we've already considered it. Um, The only thing to ask here is why is it in verses 9 and 10 that if a priest offers a grain offering that has been cooked on the griddle, uh, a pan, or in the oven, the whole thing belongs to the priest who offers it. But if it's raw, it's it's just mixed, it's not been cooked, it has to be shared. Why is that? The answer is, I don't really know. (laughs) I've looked at at some answers, there's a lot of speculation. Part of me wonders, perhaps with the raw grain, it could all be stored together as raw, um, and then maybe later on divided in a way that you couldn't really do that if it was already cooked. But the answer is, we're not quite sure, but they would have known at the time, okay? Verse 11, and this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, and he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil, with the sacrifice of his peace offerings, each, uh, sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with the loaves of leavened bread, and from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the, of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his uh, offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten." But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted. Neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Now this passage, too, we looked at not all that long ago when we considered um, the, the peace offerings. The only thing to ask here that's kind of special that we haven't looked at is that when the peace offering is a Thanksgiving offering, it had to be eaten that day. Whatever was left over had to be burned. You couldn't really eat of it. It just all had to be eaten that day. If it was for a vow or a free will offering, it could be eaten also on the second day, but on the third, it all had to be burned up. Why? <laughs> What's the difference if it's for a thanksgiving offering or a vow or a free will offering? Again, we're not entirely sure, but I think John Gill is probably correct when he says that the the difference lies in the more voluntary nature of the vow and the free will offerings. In other words, thanksgiving offerings were commanded at certain certain feasts. You had to give them, right? Right? vow offerings, free will offerings, those were never commanded by God. An Israelite could live throughout their whole life, never do that, and be faithful to the law of Moses. Perhaps it is then, because those are more voluntary, God allows the worshiper to enjoy, enjoy more of them, perhaps. That, that makes sense to me, okay? Verse 19, heading into the home stretch now. Flesh that touches any unclean thing Shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh, but the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean, detestable creature, and then eat some of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, You shall eat no fat of ox or of sheep or of goat. The fat of an animal that dies of itself, and the fat of one that is torn by beasts, may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat of it. For every person who eats the fat of an animal, of which a food offering may be made to the Lord, shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood, whatever, whether of fowl or of animal, in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. There's really just two things to note in this section. First, of course nothing of the sacrifices that had become unclean could be eaten. And no person who is in a state of uncleanness could eat of the sacrifices of the Lord. This is specifically mentioned here with the peace offerings because the peace offerings were the only ones that the worshipers themselves actually ate of. So it makes sense that they would say that here. Second, there is a specific injunction in general of the eating of any fat or of any blood, This prohibition does not merely refer to the fat or blood of sacrifices, but of all animals in general. We see this from the fact that in verse 24 it says, The fat of an animal that dies of itself, and the fat of one that is torn by beasts, may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat of it. Well, if this section were only dealing with animals for sacrifice, you wouldn't need this verse because you would never offer as a sacrifice an animal that died of natural causes or that had been torn by beasts. As far as why no fat could be eaten, and, and when we say fat, we're not saying if you had a juicy steak, right? We're talking about the fat on the end of it. That, that could not be eaten. Why is this? Well, we already read the answer in Leviticus 3.16. All fat is the Lord's. Fat was the choicest, and so it belonged to the God. It or belonged to God. It could not be eaten, and was rather to be burned. As far as eating blood, you might think, why doesn't this say drinking blood? Why eating blood? Eating blood refers to eating meat that had not properly been drained of its blood. This too was not to be done again, because of the significance of blood, its cleansing and forgiving power. And this really goes well beyond the law of Moses, all the way back to Genesis 9 4. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. So, blood is the life, it's part of sacrifice. You're missing the significance if you eat it. Okay? All right. Last but not least, beginning in verse 28. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring, it, shall bring the Lord's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel." This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from the Lord's food offerings. From the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord, the Lord commanded this be given to them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. Here we just simply note which portions went to the priests with this offering, the breastpiece and the thigh. That was their right. It was something that they were entitled to, by virtue of their priesthood, okay? Lastly, the whole section finally ends, okay? Verse 37, this is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Okay. As I said, that was going to be like drinking water from a a fire hydrant or whatever, right? Let's now slow down. Let's consider some gospel application from this whole passage. As I've said, much of what is covered in this passage, we've looked at before in one way or another, and we've tried to see the application from it. We've looked at the distinction between holy and common, clean and unclean. We've considered what that teaches us about sin and Christ's atonement. I do think, however, there is a unique gospel application for this section as it pertains to eating. Eating of clean foods and the priestly eating from the altar, which is the main theme of this part of Leviticus. In order to see this application, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Chapter Thirteen. Hebrews, Chapter Thirteen. We'll begin in verse nine. <clears throat> it says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Here, the author of Hebrews warns his readers to beware of diverse and strange teachings. He doesn't tell us explicitly what kind of strange teachings these are, but one word, and especially the context of Hebrews, really gives us a clue as to what he's talking about, Namely, the word foods. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. This is actually a very common warning that we find throughout the New Testament, especially as it relates to food. Food is often very much related to false doctrine, false teaching. How? Well, Paul, for example, in Colossians, Colossians 2, tells the Colossians, not to submit to man-made regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These, he says, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Similarly, Timothy. Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, of those who devote themselves to teachings of demons, as he calls it. He says they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. This kind of false doctrine and false teaching was actually very common for the early Christians. By foods, especially given the context of the book of Hebrews, namely being written to Jewish Christians, by foods... We should understand it as referring to the various dietary laws of the Mosaic law, namely clean and unclean, as well as all other kinds of traditional teachings of the elders and things like that as well. That's foods. We see this also in an interesting juxtaposition of the author of Hebrews. Namely, he juxtaposes food with what? Grace. That's kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Food versus grace. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Throughout the New Testament, grace is more commonly juxtaposed with works, right? Romans eleven six. 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grace and works are incompatible antitheses. They don't mix. You can't, have God's, uh, you can't have eternal life by a mixture of works and grace. Here, Paul, uh, Paul, or I'm sorry, the author of Hebrews, contrasts grace with foods, which again really confirms the idea that these are dietary restrictions of the law, since works and the law often go together. Paul often refers to works as works of the law, Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This warning, then, about teachings and doctrines of food is really a warning to not turn away from Christ to go back to the law. That really fits with the larger burden of the author of Hebrews all throughout his epistle. Namely, he's writing to Jewish Christians and he's trying to get them to to stop uh, from leaving Christ to return back to the law in the face of persecution from their fellow Jews. He says in chapter 10, verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. But now it seems as though they're getting tired. Perhaps they thought persecution would come to an end. Maybe they thought Jesus would have returned by now. Either way, their situation hasn't changed and they're getting tired. He says in verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence which has great reward for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. They needed endurance. They started out well, but the race hasn't stopped yet, and they're getting tired. They had probably seen some that they had gone to worship with before apostatize and turn back to the law. Those are who the author of Hebrews is talking about, the those who had apostatized, when he says in chapter 6, for it is impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age have come, then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Those are the ones who gave up Christ wasn't precious enough for them. Persecution was too hard. So what did they do? They turned from grace back to foods. The law of Moses. Sadly for them, as he explains, they've turned to something empty that cannot benefit them. Indeed, it never did. He says the laws about clean or unclean foods, the foods themselves, quote, have not benefited benefited those devoted to them. Paul says something similar in Colossians 2, that these man-made regulations, quote, are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So the author of Hebrews is begging them, don't go back to that. The law had its place and it and its time, but it pointed to Christ. And now that the Christ has come, to leave Christ, to go back to the thing that pointed to him, it's empty. The only hope of the law was Christ himself, to leave him. For the shadows, don't go back to that. You're missing the point. Hebrews 10.1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Then look at verse 10 of Hebrews 13. He develops his argument even further. He says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Hmm. Verse 10 can seem a little bit abrupt. Um, he kind of does some kind of a shift, and yet clearly there is a connection because he's carried over the idea of eating from the idea of foods, right? He's, he's carrying that over. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Those who serve the tent is a reference to the Levitical priests, not only because they served in the tent or the tabernacle, but also because, as we've seen throughout that section of Leviticus we looked at, they had a right It was their perpetual due given by Yahweh to eat of his sacrifices. And yet, he says, they have no right to eat from our altar. What exactly does he mean by our altar? What is the altar of the new covenant? Clearly, we don't have an earthly altar. This is not an altar. And Romanists twist this passage to to justify some kind of a physical altar of the Mass. That's not what's going on here. So what is the altar of the New Covenant? Probably the most common interpretation of this historically, and I think I largely agree with this, is that our altar is actually none other than Jesus Christ himself. For example, John Gill says, our altar is not the cross of Christ on which he was crucified, nor the Lord's table, where his flesh and blood are presented to faith as food, but Christ himself, who is altar, sacrifice, and priest. Now, that interpretation is probably the standard interpretation among Protestants historically, and I think it probably even has a very rich history throughout, um, throughout the history of the church. Not only, they argue, is Christ the sacrifice, not only is he the high priest, but he is even the altar. Now, before you think that's a bit of a stretch, there is something in the context which actually suggests that that's kind of what the author of Hebrews has in mind to some degree. For example, if you look at verse 15 of chapter 13, what he says there. Through him, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It is argued that just as they offered up sacrifices to God upon the bronze altar, we by Christ, our altar, offer up sacrifices of praise. For Example, John Lightfoot says, As on the altar in the temple they offered their sacrifices and thank offerings, so by Christ, as on our altar, let us offer our sacrifice of praise to God. I don't think that's entirely unwarranted. In fact, I think I largely agree with that. Clearly, Christ is the sacrifice. He's also the priest. He's also the tabernacle himself. He's the golden lampstand. He is the veil, all those things. It's not a stretch to say he is also the bronze altar. It could be, though, that the author's meaning is perhaps not that precise. I agree that Christ and his altar is really what's, uh, as our altar is, kind of what's, what's being understood here, but it may be perhaps in a broader sense. And in fact, I, I really like how Benjamin Keats describes this. He says, Our altar, metaphorically, denotes the whole mystery of Christ the mediator and is put by a synecdoche for his oblation or sacrifice. Let me say it again. Our altar metaphorically denotes the whole mystery of Christ, the mediator, and is put by a synecdoche for his oblation or sacrifice. So the altar really refers to all of Christ, the whole mystery of Christ, all that is in him and all the goodness we receive from him. The altar itself, he says, is a synecdoche for Christ and all of his blessings, just as um, the altar is related to the sacrifice and the priest and all that, he says the altar is a synecdoche. Now, what is a synecdoche? You might say gesundheit or something, right? A synecdoche is speaking of the whole by just mentioning a part, okay? It's a part for the whole. When a man gets down on one knee and he says, will you give me your hand in marriage? He intends to marry much more than just the hand, Right? The whole woman, the whole woman is, is put in place of just the hand. Will you marry me is really what he's asking. That's a synecdoche. Benjamin Keats then says that just as the altar is associated with the sacrifice and the priest, therefore all that is meant by Christ, the whole mystery of Christ, is represented to us by the altar. We get to eat of all those benefits of Christ, just as they got to eat of the Old Testament altar. Furthermore, we should connect this back to what we've seen before in verse 9, namely the contrast between grace and foods. Just as foods is related to the Mosaic law, so also is the reference to the Levitical priests and their altar. This is all in contrast not only to our altar, Christ the New Covenant, but grace as well such that we see the author of Hebrews developing kind of what at first seems abrupt, and yet it's actually a very fitting, very rich um, argument here. What then is his point? What is his point that he's trying to make? I think it goes something like this. The Jewish Christians were no longer submitting to food regulations or other regulations from the law because those had been abolished by Christ. Because of that, They were being looked down upon and judged as unclean. Many of their former friends had abandoned them. They wouldn't go near them. They were unclean. Perhaps some of their family members now considered them unclean. Maybe they were eating uh, things that would traditionally be considered unclean. Maybe they're eating with unclean Gentiles. And for all of that, they're being judged and cast away as unclean. Furthermore, they were probably not merely being judged as unclean, but as cut off from the temple and its sacrifice and from even Israel itself. Remember, it says in Leviticus 7 verse 20, the person who eats of the the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. So they're being judged, They're being said to be disqualified. They are said to be cut off from the God of Israel. And yet the author of Hebrews says, no, 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 no. You're so wrong with saying that. So much greater is our altar than yours that not only can you laymen not eat of our altar, but not even your holy priests have any right to it. He takes it up a notch from matters of clean and unclean to holiness the average jew if they were clean could eat of the sacrifices but they could not eat the priestly portions as we've read throughout that whole section when they talk about the priestly portions it says this is most holy it could only be eaten by the whole priest but he says our altar is so much greater than yours not even your holy priests have a right to ours Rather, they and those who cling to the law, they are the disqualified ones. Those who cling to their unclean works, those are the unclean ones. Those who cling to Moses are the ones cut off from the God of Israel. They have no right or portion in him. John Lightfoot says, We cannot but be moved by the expression, Having no right to eat of our altar. Is a very mournful statement which speaks to having no right at all to Christ. The very sound of this makes a heart tremble. No right to Christ? No portion in the Son of God? Look upon these men that serve the tabernacle. They are men that are careful and attendant upon their service. Blameless in their lives, zealous in religion, fervently looking at atonement and salvation, and yet they had no right in Christ. Why? Because a right to Christ, a right to eat from his altar, is only obtained by faith and grace. Only sinners who come by faith to this altar can eat of it and can have benefit of Christ's blood. Those who seek to be established by their works have no right. They are cut off. Just as we read that those who tried to eat Old Testament sacrifices while unclean were cut off from Israel, so those who seek to eat of Christ and His grace while in the uncleanness of their own righteousness shall be cut off. Galatians 5.2. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, we could say, or foods also, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision or foods, he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. They are the disqualified ones. Not those who come by faith. You have a right to Christ. You've been qualified. Colossians 1.12. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You are not unclean. You've been cleansed. You're not common. You're holy. You are not cut off. You are secure in Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let your hearts be strengthened and established by the grace of Jesus Christ. Feed upon Christ and his grace. That's what actually strengthens the heart, not man-made regulations. John Owen says, The grace of Christ is that alone which doth, which can, which will establish the heart of a sinner in peace with God. Which will keep it from being moved or tossed up and down with the sense of the guilt of sin or divine displeasure. Feed upon Christ in his blood when your conscience is condemning you. That's the only thing that can stay it, not man made works of righteousness. Stand firm in grace, brothers and sisters. The Judaizers have cousins, they're still all around us today. They will be here till the end of the world. There are those who would seek to put yokes of bondage upon you. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Feed upon Christ. You children here, would you like salvation? Would you like to receive grace from Christ and the forgiveness of sins? Would you like to have a right to Christ and all of his benefits? The only way to obtain that is by faith. By faith alone. Not trusting in your own good works, your own repentance, your own obedience, that your parents are Christians. Those who look to those things are disqualified from Christ. Those who look to Christ alone receive everything In him. Look away from yourself. Look away from your sin, your inability to save yourself, and look to Christ, and you will be saved. And you can receive grace from him as well, even today. I laughed as I wrote this last part. I do believe in altar calls. (laughs) Womp womp. (laughs) Come to the altar of Christ by faith and you can partake and eat freely. His grace is given to all, and you will be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for glorious Christ. We thank you for deep, rich grace abounding for feeble, rotten sinners God, would you strengthen us in your grace today? Would you help us to stand firm? Father, for anyone here who is so fixated on their own sin, their own inability, or even on their own righteousness, would you give them faith to put their eyes on Christ and receive of him freely in Jesus' name.